And we are live. What's up, guys? Welcome to Feta. Today, we're going to be covering Ed Gein. I'm here with Angie. Introduce yourself Hi. to the people. Hi. Uh, my name is Angelica, but I prefer Angie because it's easier for everybody. And yes, I'm co-hosting again, and we're doing Ed Gein. You mean Ed Gein, as you would say? Ed Gein. <laughs> Ed Gein. Um, you guys have been requesting this one for a while, man, so we're going to get right into it. I'm not going to play the intro on this one. I'm doing a little experiment with YouTube. Because for some odd reason, I always get a yellow mark anytime I do that intro. I think it has to do with the Boston Marathon bombing stuff going off in the intro. And they're like, oh, my God, that's, you know, not good. I guess, like, what's the term for you it? Need to change Violent content intro. or whatever. But it is what it is, even if it's historical. So anyway, here he is, guys. Ed Gein right here. Edward Theodore Gein, uh, born August 27, 1906, died July 26, 1984, also known as the Butcher of Plainfield or the Plainfield Ghoul, was an American murderer and body snatcher. Gein's crimes committed around his hometown of Plainfield, Wisconsin, gathered widespread notoriety in 1957 after authorities discovered that he had exhumed corpses from local graveyards and fashioned trophies and keepsakes from their bones and skin. Gein also confessed to killing two women, tavern owner Mary Hogan in 1954 and hardware store owner Bernice Warden in 1957. Gein was initially found unfit to stand trial and confined to a mental health facility. By 1968, he was judged competent to stand trial. He was found guilty of the murder of Warden, but he was found uh, legally insane and was remanded to a, psychi a psychiatric institution. He died at Mendota Mental Health Institute from respiratory failure resulting from lung cancer on July 26, 1984, at age 77. He was buried next to his family in the Plainfield Cemetery in a now unmarked grave. And I'm sure you guys, if it was marked, then people would be going crazy. So this hymn doesn't look like the <laughs> sanest of individuals, so I'm not surprised. Actually, somebody stole this stone. Oh, did they? Yeah. I'm not surprised. Uh, so we're going to react to this documentary right here, guys. Serial Killer Ed Gein, full documentary. This comes from Serial Killer Documentary. Shout out to them. Give them a like. Subscribe. Check them out as well. Don't forget to like and subscribe to this channel. I'm going to pause this throughout, give you guys some commentary. Um, but the other documentaries that we had, we don't want to get hit with a um, with a copyright. So we want to make sure that we can do something that won't cause issues. Because you guys might not know this, but I've done a bunch of podcasts where it, I couldn't upload it because it got hit with like a copyright or whatever it is. So it sucks, man. Um, also, I'm going to do the, you guys can see here, the Golden State Killer. That will probably be next because um, you guys have been asking for him for a while. What about John Bennett Ramsey? That too. That too. Those, those, one of those two is going to be next for y'all. So, um, all right, let's get right into it without further ado. On November 17th, 1957, Police in Plainfield, Wisconsin, arrived at the dilapidated farmhouse of Eddie Gein. He was a suspect in the robbery of a local hardware store and disappearance of the owner, Bernice Warden. Gein had been the last customer at the hardware store and had been seen loitering around the premises. And this is a uh, police investigator carrying this chair. Guys, human skin is used right here in this area that he had put in this chair. Wild. Yeah, that's part of his house. Gein's desolate farmhouse was a study in chaos. Inside, junk and rotting garbage covered the floors and counters. It was almost impossible to walk through the rooms. The smell of filth and decomposition was overwhelming. While the local sheriff, Arthur Schley, inspected the shed with his flashlight, he felt something brush against his jacket. When he looked up to see what it was he ran into, he faced a large, dangling carcass hanging upside down from the beams. The carcass had been decapitated, slid open, and gutted. What? Crazy. Absolutely what crazy. To be sure, an ugly sight is a familiar one in that deer-hunting part of the country, especially during deer season. 
It took a few moments to sink in, but soon Schley realized that it wasn't a deer at all. It was the headless, butchered body of a woman. Bernice Warden, the 50-year-old mother of his deputy, Frank Warden, had been found. While the shock deputies searched through the rubble of Eddie Gein's existence, they realized that the horrible discoveries didn't end at Mrs. Warden's body. They had stumbled into a death farm. The funny-looking bowl was the top of a human skull. The lampshades and wastebasket were made from human skin. A ghoulish inventory began to take shape. An armchair made of human skin, female genitalia kept preserved in a shoebox, a belt made of nipples, a human head, four noses, and a heart. The more, what? The more they looked around the house, the, the more ghastly trophies they found. Finally, a suit made entirely of human skin. Their heads spun as they tried to tally the number of women that may have died at Eddie's hands. All of and just so you guys know, this is what one of the um, artifacts look like. This is one of the skulls that he used that he used to eat food from and drink water from. He used Crazy, bro. Yeah. Uh, there's some more photos here, but I'm not going to show them because we're definitely going to get age restricted if I do that. But yeah, pretty gruesome stuff. I'll put the link here for you guys in the description so you guys can look at the unedited crime scene photos. This bizarre handicraft made Eddie into a celebrity. Author Robert Block was inspired to write a story about Norman Bates, a character based on Eddie, which became Alfred Hitchcock's classic thriller, Psycho. In 1974, the classic thriller by Toby Hooper, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, had many Geanian touches. However, no character is an exact Eddie Gein model. My favorite Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie was the one from 2005. I think Jessica Biel was in it. Uh, here, I'll pull it up for y'all. Because uh, there's been so many remakes of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think that one was the best, in my opinion. My, my, my this best movie, movie Buffalo Bill. From, Buffalo Bill? Yeah, from, from... What did you call it? Buffalo Bill? That's his name. <laughs> from the movie... Uh, I don't know what's the name in English. Do you know the name? Uh, no. No. Oh, yeah. Here we go. This is it. So I, I thought it was all five. It's actually this yeah. one, guys. The one from 2003. Okay. This one was my favorite by far. Uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003. And uh, Jessica Bill, Erica Learson, um, Eric Balfour. I remember him when he got killed. That was gruesome. But yeah, good movie. But it was inspired by this guy, Ed Gein. That's when they say, oh, based on a true story, it's based on. They should really say based loosely on a true story. Well, my favorite is the, the Silence of the Lambs. Oh, okay, okay. I was referring to. Yes, this was another, that was another movie that was re, uh, based on Ed Gein. Helped put Ghastly Gein back in the spotlight in the mid-1970s. Years later, Eddie provided inspiration for another serial killer, Buffalo Bill, in The Silence of the Lambs. Like Eddie, Buffalo Bill treasured women's skin and wore it like clothing in some insane transvestite ritual. How does a child evolve into an Eddie Gein? A close look at his childhood and home life provides many clues. Now, you guys are going to notice here that he had a pretty decent upbringing with his mom, and he snaps when his mom passed away, and you guys are going to see here in a little bit. Edward Theodore was born on August 27, 1906, to Augusta and George Gein in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Eddie was the second of two boys born to the couple. The firstborn was Henry, who was seven years older than Eddie. Augusta, a fanatically religious woman, was determined to raise the boys according to her strict moral code. 
Sinners inhabited Augusta's world, and she instilled in her boys the teachings of the Bible daily. She repeatedly warned her sons of the immorality and looseness of women, hoping to discourage any sexual desires the boys might have had. For See, he didn't want them to be she belongs to the streets. around them types of chicks. Fear of them being cast down into hell. Augusta was a domineering and hard woman who believed her views of the world were absolute and true. She had no difficulty forcefully imposing her beliefs on her sons and husband. Creepy picture. George, a weak man and an alcoholic, had no say in raising the boys. In fact, Augusta despised him and saw him as a worthless creature, not fit to hold down a job, let alone care for their children. She took it upon herself to raise the children according to her beliefs and financially support the family. She began a grocery business in La Crosse the year Eddie was born. It brought in a fair amount of money to support the family comfortably. She worked hard and saved money so that the family could move to a more rural area away from the immorality of the city and the sinners that inhabited it. In 1914, they moved to Plainfield, Wisconsin, to a 195-acre farm isolated from any evil influences that could disrupt their family. The closest neighbors were almost a quarter of a mile away. And just to give you guys a perspective of what was going on in 1906 at the time, okay? Because this was a long-ass time ago, all right? July 11th, murder of Grace Brown, a factory worker who was killing causes a nationwide sensation. Uh, July 14th, Gary Indiana is founded by the United States Steel Corporation. August 23rd, unable to control a rebellion in newly formed Cuban Republic. President Thomas Estrada Palma requests U.S. intervention. September 5th, uh, Bradbury excuse me, Robinson of the St. Louis University throws the first legal forward pass in an American football game. September 22nd, Atlanta race riot. Race riots in Atlanta, Georgia results in 27 people killed and the black-owned business district severely damaged. September 24th, U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt proclaims Devil's Tower, Wyoming as the nation's first national monument. September 26th, the first concert of the Telharmonium, uh, Tel the first music synthesizer is presented at Telharmonic Hole, Broadway at 39th Street, New York City. And then the first Gordon Bennett, Bennett Cup in the ballooning is held starting in Paris. Uh, the winning team piloting the balloon United States lands in Flying Dales, Yorkshire, England, United Kingdom. So this is what was going on in 1906 back in the day. And this was the year that your boy uh, Ed Gein was born. So <laughs> long time ago, man, there was like no technology back then. Although Augusta tried diligently to keep her sons away from the outside world, she was not entirely successful because they needed to attend school. Eddie's performance in school was average, although he excelled in reading. The reading of adventure books and magazines stimulated Eddie's imagination and allowed him to momentarily escape into his own world. His schoolmates shunned Eddie because he was effeminate and shy. He had no friends, and when he attempted to make them, his mother scolded him. Although his mother's opposition to making friends saddened Eddie, he saw her as the epitome of goodness. He followed her strict orders the best he could. However, this importance of high masculinity in your life. See, that's a very, he's effeminate, has all these issues with his characteristics. Why? Because he's raised by a single mother. However, Augusta was rarely pleased with her boys. She often verbally abused them, believing that they were destined to become failures like their father. During their teens and throughout their early adulthood, the boys remained detached from people outside of their farmstead. They had only the company of each other. Eddie looked up to his brother Henry and saw him as a hard worker and a man of strong character. 
After their father died in 1940, they took on a series of odd jobs to help financially support the farm and their mother. Eddie tried to emulate his brother's work habits, and they both were considered by townspeople to be reliable and trustworthy. They worked as handymen mostly, yet Eddie frequently babysat for neighbors. It was babysitting that Eddie really enjoyed because the children were more comfortable for him to relate to than his peers. He was, in many ways, socially and emotionally retarded. Henry was worried about Eddie's unhealthy attachment. <laughs> Stupid! Ah, uh, emotionally retarded. ...to their mother. On several occasions, Henry openly criticized their mother, something that shocked Eddie. Eddie saw his mother as pure goodness and was mortified that his brother did not see her in the same way. It was possibly these incidents that led to the untimely and mysterious death of Henry in 1944. On May 16th, Eddie and Henry were fighting a bushfire burning dangerously close to their farm. According to police, the two separated in different directions, attempting to put out the blaze. During their struggle, the night quickly approached, and soon Eddie lost sight of Henry. After the fire was extinguished, Eddie supposedly became worried about his missing brother and contacted the police. The police then organized a search party and were surprised upon reaching the farm to have Eddie lead them directly to the missing Henry. The latter was lying dead on the ground. The police were concerned about some of the things surrounding Henry's death. For example, Henry was lying on a piece of earth untouched by fire and he had bruises on his head. Although Henry was found under strange circumstances, police were quick to dismiss foul play. No one could believe shy Eddie was capable of killing anyone, especially mm. his brother. Later, probably murked that boy for talking smack about his mom. Hit yeah. him with the quick. The county coroner would list asphyxiation as the cause of death. The only living person Eddie had left was his mother, and that was the only person he needed. However, he would have his mother all to himself for a very brief period. On December 29, 1945, Augusta died after a series of strokes. Eddie's foundations were shaken upon her death. Harold Schechter, in his book Deviant, explained that Eddie had lost his only friend and one true love. He was absolutely alone in the world. After his mother's death, he remained at the farm and lived off the meager earnings from odd jobs that he performed. Eddie boarded off the rooms his mother used the most, mainly the upstairs floor, the downstairs parlor, and the living room. He preserved them as a shrine to her and left them untouched for the years to follow. He resided in the lower level of the house, making use of the kitchen area and a small room located just off the kitchen, which he used as a bedroom. It was in these areas that Eddie would spend his spare time reading death cult magazines and adventure stories. At other times... Look how disheveled the house is, man. Like, you could see that this guy just had zero order, zero type of uh, discipline, and really couldn't get anything done without his mom there. And this is the importance mm -hmm. of having a strong father figure that teaches you how to live without the confinements of your... Within, you know, the parameters of your parents just babying you everywhere. This is a man that quite literally had zero ability to be on his own. Eddie would immerse himself in his bizarre hobbies that included nightly visits to the graveyard. After the death of his mother, Eddie became increasingly lonely. He spent much of his spare time reading pulp magazines and anatomy books. The rooms he inhabited were full of periodicals about Nazis, South Sea headhunters, and shipwrecks. 
Eddie learned about the process of shrinking heads, exhuming corpses from graves, and the anatomy of the human body from his readings. He became obsessed with these weird stories, and he would often recount some of them to the children he babysat. Eddie also enjoyed reading the local newspapers. His favorite section was the obituaries. It was from the obituaries that Eddie would learn of the recent deaths of local women. Having never enjoyed the opposite sex's company, he would quench his lust by visiting graves at night. Although he later swore to police that he never had sexual intercourse with any of the dead women he exhumed, they smelled too bad. He did take particular pleasure in peeling their skin from their bodies and wearing it. He was curious to know... What? What the fuck? Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> this guy's a weirdo, man. And just so you guys know, this is where, um, in the movie The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when he peels the skin off the, the people, etc., that was inspired by this dude right here. So, um, wearing the skin. Because in the movie, he wears the skin of a lot of his victims. So, and I remember this one scene in the 2003 movie, he wears the face of one of the guys when he attacks the girlfriend and she thought it was crazy. So, um, you guys should definitely go check that one out, the 2003 version. Know what it was like to have breasts and a vagina, and he often dreamed of being a woman. He was fascinated with women because of the power and hold they had over men. <laughs> he acquired quite a collection of body parts, some of which included preserved heads. On one occasion, a small boy that he sometimes looked after visited Eddie's farm. He later said that Eddie had shown him human skulls that he kept in his bedroom. Eddie claimed the shriveled heads were from the South Seas, relics from headhunters. When the young boy told people of his experience, his story was quickly dismissed as a figment of the young boy's imagination. This will often. Then, somewhat later, the boy was vindicated when two other young men visited Eddie Gein's farm. They, too, had seen the preserved heads of women, but thought them to be just strange Halloween costumes. Crazy. Rumors began to circulate, and soon most of the townspeople were gossiping about the strange objects Eddie supposedly possessed. However, no one took the story seriously until Bernice Warden disappeared years later. In fact, people would often joke with Eddie about having shrunken heads, and Eddie would just smile or make reference to having them in his room. No one thought he was telling the truth. Or maybe they just didn't want to believe it was true. During the late 1940s and 1950s, Wisconsin police began to notice an increase in missing persons cases. Four cases particularly baffled police. The first was that of an eight-year-old girl named Georgia Weckler, who had disappeared coming home from school on May 1, 1947. Hundreds of residents and police searched an area of 10 square miles of Jefferson, Wisconsin, hoping to find the young girl. Unfortunately, Georgia would never be seen or heard of again. There were no right suspects, and the only evidence police had to go on were tire marks found near the place where Georgia was last seen. The tire marks were that of a Ford. The case remained unsolved and wouldn't be opened until years later when Eddie Gein was convicted of murder. Another girl disappeared six years later in La Crosse, Wisconsin. 15-year-old Evelyn Hartley had been babysitting at the time she had vanished. Evelyn's father repeatedly tried to phone the girl at the house where she was babysitting, and there was no answer. Worried, the girl's father immediately drove to where she was babysitting. Nobody answered the door. When he peered through a window, 
He could see one of his daughter's shoes and a pair of her eyeglasses on the floor. He tried to enter the house, but all the doors and windows were locked, except for the back basement window. It was at that window where he discovered bloodstains. Petrified, he entered the house and found signs of a struggle. Immediately, he contacted police. When police arrived at the house, they found more evidence of a struggle, including bloodstains on the grass leading away from the home, a bloody handprint on a neighboring house, footprints, and the girl's other shoe on the basement floor. A regional search was conducted, but Evelyn was nowhere to be found. A few days later, police discovered some bloodied clothing articles that belonged to Evelyn near a highway outside of La Crosse. The worst was suspected. In November of 1952, two men stopped for a drink at a bar in Plainfield, Wisconsin, before heading out to hunt deer. Victor Travis and Ray Burgess spent several hours at the bar before leaving. The two men in their car were never to be seen again. A massive search was conducted, but there was no trace of them. They had simply vanished. And you guys got to understand, back then in the early 19, you know, in the 1900s, right? You know, from 1900 all the way to really 1990s, uh, there was no forensic evidence. There was no DNA. All this stuff is relatively new. So if someone went missing, if there were serial killers out there, people committing murders, etc., it was very difficult for the police to actually solve these cases, mm -hmm. especially back then. So if you went missing back then, bro, there was a very good chance that that case was going to go cold and they would never find you. Hell, nowadays, with all the technology they have, they still have a low close rate on these cases. So you can only imagine back then how uh, slim the chances were of finding actually finding someone and or solving a case. Yeah, that's why so many like murders and this like sketchy cases where that was that was why he was so dismissed from all those cases, you know, because yep, they couldn't link them. You know, yeah. and even, even if it was so obvious that he killed his brother. Yep, exactly. Um, and the other thing, too, you guys got to know is that this is why serial killers like, you know, from the 60s all the way up until really the 90s, right from the Zodiac killer all the way up until like people like Jeffrey Dahmer, etc. They went crazy in the 70s and 80s because, again, this is before DNA was able to positively identify people. Right. You got someone like BTK who was committing murders for 30 plus years. Right. Go watch the BTK breakdown if you want. Mm -hmm. um, and they weren't able to identify him until. 2005 because they were able to use dna that was found back in 1974 to identify him and link him to that crime scene so uh very common um <clears throat> that a lot of these cases would go unsolved in the winter of 1954 a plainfield tavern keeper named mary hogan mysteriously disappeared from her business place police suspected foul play when they discovered blood on the tavern floor that trailed into the parking lot Police also discovered an empty bullet cartridge on the floor. Police could only speculate about what might have happened to Mary because they had no bodies and little useful evidence like the other four missing people. The only other standard tie among these cases was that all of the disappearances happened around or in Plainfield, Wisconsin. On November 17, 1957, after discovering Bernice Warden's headless corpse in the shed, and her head and other gruesome artifacts in Eddie's house, police began an exhaustive search of the remaining parts of the farm and surrounding land. They believed Eddie may have been involved in more murders. The bodies might be buried on his land, possibly those of Georgia Weckler, Victor Travis and Ray Burgess, Evelyn Hartley, and Mary Hogan. While excavations began at the farmstead, 
Ellie was being interviewed at Watoma County Jailhouse by investigators. Gein, at first, did not admit to any of the killings. However, after more than a day of silence, he began to tell the horrible story of how he killed Mrs. Warden and acquired the body parts found in his house. Gein had difficulty remembering every detail because he claimed he had been in a dazed state at the time leading up to and during the murder. Yet, he recalled dragging Warden's body to his Ford truck, taking the store's cash register, and taking them back to his house. He did not remember shooting her in the head with a twenty-two caliber gun, which autopsy reports later listed as the cause of death. When asked where the other body parts came from discovered in his house, he said that he had stolen them from local graves. Eddie insisted that he had not killed any of the people whose remains were found in his house, except for Mrs. Warden. However, after days of intense... I promise, I didn't kill any of them, bro. Just, just that one chick, okay? Just that one chick that owns the store. <laughs> ...interrogation. He finally admitted to the killing of Mary Hogan. Again, he claimed he was in a dazed state at the murder time, and he could not remember exact details of what actually happened. The only memory he had was that he had accidentally shot her. Eddie showed no signs of remorse or emotion during the many hours of interrogation. When he talked about the murders and of his grave-robbing escapades, he spoke very matter-of-factly, even cheerfully at times. He had no concept of the enormity of his crimes. Gein's sanity was in question. It was suggested that during the trial, he plead not guilty because of insanity. Gein underwent a battery of psychological tests, which later concluded that he was indeed emotionally impaired. Psychologists and psychiatrists who interviewed him asserted that he was schizophrenic and a sexual psychopath. His condition was attributed to the unhealthy relationship he had with his mother and his upbringing. Gein apparently suffered from conflicting feelings about women, his natural sexual attraction, and the unnatural attitudes that his mother had instilled in him. This love-hate feeling towards women became exaggerated and eventually developed into full-blown psychosis. While Eddie was undergoing further interrogation and psychological tests, investigators continued to search the land around his farm. See, guys, and I don't mean to bring this back to intersexual dynamics, but this is the importance of understanding women and knowing how they think. Because when you understand women, right, and you know how they think, well, then you can attract them. And then if you can attract them, you don't need to do crazy stuff like this to go ahead and get your sexual gratification. People talk shit all the time. Oh, the RP makes you angry, misogynistic, blah, blah, blah. No, if you use it correctly, it helps you understand women so that you can't, you don't hate them for what they'll never be to you, an idealistic lover. Because a lot of you guys, you know, not you guys, but a lot of people that, you know, get in relationships with women, et cetera, they tend to look at women from an idealistic standpoint. Disney fairy tale, oh, she's going to love me unconditionally. No, that's not how things work. Stupid. You have to go ahead and become the man so they want to go ahead and be with that man, if that makes sense. So, this is the importance of understanding women, so you're not doing weird shit like this, grave robbing bodies. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He was also a psychopath. Yeah, of but, course he's a psychopath as well, yeah. but like, this is the importance of being able to be attractive and know what the hell you're doing. Police discovered within Eddie's farmhouse the remains of 10 women. Although Eddie swore that the remaining body parts of eight women were taken from local graveyards, police were skeptical. They believed that the remains could have come from women Eddie may have murdered. The only way police could ascertain whether the remains came from women's corpses was to examine the graves Eddie claimed he had robbed. After much controversy about the morality of exhuming the bodies, police were finally permitted to dig up the graves of the women Eddie claimed to have desecrated. 
All of the coffins showed clear signs of tampering. In most cases, the bodies, or parts of the bodies, were missing. There would be another discovery on Eddie's land that would again raise the issue of whether Eddie did, in fact, murder a third person. On November 29th, police unearthed human skeletal remains on the Gein farm. It was suspected that the body was that of Victor Travis, who had disappeared years earlier. The remains were immediately taken to a crime lab and examined. Tests showed that the body was not that of a male, but of a large, middle-aged woman, another graveyard souvenir. Try as the police did, they could not implicate Eddie in the disappearance of Victor Travis or the three other people who had vanished years earlier in the Plainfield area. The only murders Eddie could be held responsible for were Bernice Warden and Mary Hogan. When investigators revealed the facts about what... Comes back to what I said, guys. Um, and they have to rely on testimony and confessions. They don't have hard evidence that you can get through DNA that pretty much, uh, you know, irrefutably links them to the crime. ...was found on Eddie Gein's farm. The news quickly spread. Reporters from all over the world flocked to the small town of Plainfield, Wisconsin. The town became known worldwide, and Eddie Gein reached celebrity-like status. People were repulsed, yet at the same time drawn to the atrocities that took place on Eddie Gein's farm. Psychologists from all over the world attempted to find out what made Eddie tick. During the 1950s, he gained notoriety as being one of the most famous of documented cases involving a combination of necrophilia, transvestism, and fetishism. Even children who knew of the exploits of Eddie began to... He was one of the first before, you know, the Ted Bundys and the uh, Jeffrey Dahmers. ...sing just, songs about him. Say, and um, make... Go ahead. These things, these stressors and, uh, and emotional disorders are very, very often now. Like, you have no idea how often they are. Like, now this is, like, normal. Like, there are so many people with fetishisms like this, and there are people doing necrophilia, and it's not... They're not as charged as they... Well, it's, it's not as... It's come. It's more. It's more common than it used to be before. So, like back then, that was like a huge taboo. But right now, there are many people doing this stuff. Ah, okay. So you're saying that there's more people that are necrophiliacs that are more open with admitting it. Yeah. Versus like yeah, like back then. Yeah, because I mean, back then, of course, they'd be like, "What the hell? You need Jesus, boy!" Yeah. And they'd like execute him. But like back, uh, you know, back then. But nowadays, you're saying it's more open, and there's a lot more people that identify. Yeah. Them. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Crazy. Yeah, she studies psychology in Venezuela, guys. Jokes too, as Harold Schechter suggests in his book Deviant, exercise the nightmare with laughter. These distasteful jokes became known as Giegers and were quick to become popular worldwide. Back in Plainfield, residents endured the onslaught of reporters who disrupted their daily life by bombarding them with questions about Eddie. However, many of them eventually became involved in Eddie's mania and contributed what information they had. Plainfield was now known to the world as the home of the infamous Eddie Gein. Most residents who knew Eddie had only good things to say about him. Other than that, he was a little peculiar, had a quirky grin, and a strange sense of humor. They never suspected him of being capable of committing such ghastly crimes. But the truth was hard to escape. The little, shy, quiet man the town thought they knew was, in fact, a murderer who had violated the graves of friends and relatives. After Gein spent 30 days in a mental institution and was evaluated as mentally incompetent, he could no longer be tried for first-degree murder. 
Plainfield's people immediately voiced their anger that Eddie would not be tried for the death of Bernice Warden. Yet there was little the community could do to influence the court's decision. Eddie was committed to the Central State Hospital in Wapun, Wisconsin. Soon after Eddie was sentenced to the mental institution, his farm went up for auction and some of his other belongings. Thousands of curiosity seekers converged on the small town to see Eddie's possessions auctioned. Some of the things to be auctioned off were his car, furniture, and musical instruments. The company that handled the business of selling Eddie's goods planned to charge a fee of 50 cents to look at Eddie's property. The citizens of Plainfield were outraged. They believed Eddie's home was quickly becoming a museum for the morbid, and the town demanded something be done to put it to an end. Although the company was later forbidden to charge an entrance fee to the auction, residents were still not satisfied. In the early morning... There's this crazy thirst in the United States for serial killers and getting their memorabilia, man. It's, it's such a profitable industry. So much so that there's so many lawsuits that are put out there to not allow serial killers to monetize off of their memorabilia or anything they create while they're still alive. Or even the families of the serial killer because it just garners so much interest and mm -hmm. uh, finances. Of March 28, 1958, the Plainfield Volunteer Fire Department was called to Eddie's farm. Gein's house was on fire. The place quickly burned to the ground as onlookers watched in silent relief. Police believed that an arsonist was responsible for the blaze because there was no electrical wiring problems with the house. Although police carried out a thorough investigation, no suspect was ever found. When Eddie learned of the destruction of his house, he simply said, just as well. Although the fire destroyed most of Eddie's belongings, there were still many things that were salvaged. What was left of Eddie's possessions would still be auctioned off, including farm equipment and his car. Eddie's 1949 Ford sedan, which was used to haul dead bodies, caused a bidding war and was eventually sold for $760. The wow. man who purchased the car later put it on. Wait, his how much was that for? Seven hundred and sixty dollars. Ba oh, back in nineteen. I'm going to check the early nineteen hundred. Yeah, I'm going to check the calculator here. Display at a county fair where thousands paid a quarter to get a peek at the Gein Ghoul car. It seemed to the people of Plainfield that the public's fascination with Eddie would never end. After spending ten years in the mental institution where he was recovering, the courts finally decided he was competent to stand trial. The proceedings began on January 22, 1968, to determine whether Eddie was guilty or not by reason of insanity for the murder of Bernice Warden. The actual trial began on November 7, 1968. Eddie looked on as seven witnesses took to the stand. Several of those who testified were lab technicians. $760 back in roughly right around 1957 um, is the equivalent to about $8,136 today, guys, as far as buying power goes who performed the autopsy on Mrs. Warden, a former deputy sheriff and a sheriff. Evidence was heavily stacked against Eddie, and after only one week, the judge reached his verdict. Eddie was found guilty of first-degree murder. However, because Eddie was found to have been insane at the time of the killing, he was later found not guilty by reason of insanity and acquitted. Soon after the trial, he was escorted back to the Central State Hospital for the criminally insane. The families of Bernice Warden, Mary Hogan, and the families of those whose graves were robbed would never feel justice was served. They believed Eddie escaped the punishment due to him 
but there was nothing more they could do to reverse the court's decision. Eddie would remain at the mental institution for the rest of his life, where he happily and comfortably spent his days. <laughs> Schechter describes him as the model patient. Eddie was happy at the hospital, more optimistic, perhaps, than he'd ever been in his life. He got along well enough with the other patients, though he kept to himself for the most part. He was eating three square meals a day. The newsmen were struck by how much heavier Eddie looked since his arrest five years before. He continued to be an avid reader. He liked his regular chats with the staff psychologist. He enjoyed the handicraft work he was assigned, stone polishing, rug making, and other occupational therapy forms. He had even developed an interest in ham radios and had been permitted to use the money he had earned to order an inexpensive receiver. All in all, he was a perfectly amiable, even docile patient, one of the few in the hospital who never required tranquilizing medications to keep his craziness under control. You know, it's wild with these killers how, you know, on surface level, they're so cool, calm, collected, you know, personable. You look at people like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, etc. When they were meeting their victims, a lot of times they were able to convey a certain level of um, politeness, niceness, trustworthiness. That's how they're able to lure the people back. And the next thing you know, they show that evil side. They do that little flip, you know. And then next thing you know, they got their hand around, hand around your throat trying to suffocate you. It's wild. Again, uh, those are characteristics, main characteristics of psychopaths. Exactly. Being charm and all that stuff. Yeah. So, And Ted Bunny was one of the most famous ones yeah. by far. But John Wayne Gacy was the same way, you know, luring guys back to his house. Oh, I'll get you a job working for me. And next thing you know, he's trying to kill him. <laughs> Indeed, apart from certain peculiarities, the disconcerting way he would stare fixedly at nurses or any other female staff members who wandered into his line of vision, it was hard to tell that he was particularly crazy at all. Superintendent Schubert told reporters that Gein was a model patient. If all our patients were like him, we'd have no trouble at all. On July 26, 1984, he died after a long bout with cancer. He was buried in Plainfield Cemetery next to his mother, not far from the graves he had robbed years earlier. Yeah, he was acute as a And ironically, you said that someone stole his gravestone? Yeah, and it was found like in Phoenix, I think. Like, oh, really? Years later, I think. Yeah. Wow. He probably sold Crazy. it and made a bunch of money and <laughs> some guy bought it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Cool, guys. Um, so that is the Ed Gein show. This one was a little bit uh, shorter. Let me know how you guys like it as far as this one is more that you can like listen to versus visually watching it. So this one's more than one of those podcasts where you'll be able to you know yeah. put it on. You don't really got to watch. You can just listen and uh, tune in. Because a lot of the other podcasts that we do, you kind of have to watch it to see what's going on. But this one's a little bit more audio um, friendly. I just want to state that I found this documentary very interesting because they mention a lot of stuff that they don't mention in other documentaries. And I watch plenty on YouTube about uh, Eddie King. Yeah, she watched a bunch of them. And the other ones, guys, they would have probably hit us with a copyright. So we had to be really careful with which one that yeah. we did. Um, man, man. Uh, any last words for the people, uh, Angie? Not really. Like this actually, like this just re triggers me how easy it was to commit a murder back in like early 1900s. Yeah, so, facts. It's crazy. <laughs> and have people go missing and nothing happens. Yeah. But uh, guys, don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel. This one was a short one. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We did your boy Ed Gein. Uh, next coming up probably is going to be John Benet Ramsey or the Golden State Killer. I'm actually really excited for those two. Yeah. So um, yeah. Go check out Angie, guys. So angelic no, with two A's. No, no. <laughs> Send that dick pic. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. We'll catch you guys on the next one. All right. Uh, peace.